Welcome to Osgood's first ever virtual Pierre Genet panel discussion. My name is Sarah Slim, Associate Dean Research and Institutional Relations at Osgood Hall Law School. The annual Pierre Genet Lecture and Memorial Fund was developed in memory of the 1954 Osgood graduate and one of the finest counsel in Canada, Pierre Genet. Today, we've invited a panel to discuss the pre-recorded talk by our Pierre Genet visitor, Catherine Fisk, titled Protection by Law, Repression by Law, bringing labor back into law and social movement studies. Professor Catherine Fisk joins us from California as the Barbara Nectrite Armstrong Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley. Professor Fisk's research areas include labor law and intellectual property, and she's the author of numerous articles and books, including her most recent book, Writing for Hire, Unions, Hollywood, and Madison Avenue from Harvard University Press. Today's panel discussion is the second part of the event, following on from Professor Fisk's recorded talk, which is also a forthcoming paper in the Emory Law Journal, and challenges the line drawing which has led to the erasure of the labor movement from the field's conception of a social movement, and offers new theories of the role law plays in social movement activism. Our three panelists today are uh, Zhu Shang Tam, professor at Melbourne Law School in Australia, who researches the fields of labor law and public law with a focus on law and democracy, and the regulation of precarious work, and one of our previous uh, Genet visitors, uh, Josh Mandrick, associate at Toronto's Goldblatt Partners, a leading union-side labor law firm in Toronto, and also the Ontario Director of the Canadian Intern Association. And Ari Eidlin, a comparative historical sociologist and assistant professor in McGill's sociology department. His research explores the changing relationship between social mobilization, political processes and ideology and advanced capitalist democracies. As is our practice for Osgood events, I'd like to take a moment for the land acknowledgement. We recognize that many indigenous nations have long-standing relationships with the territories upon which York University campuses are located that precede the establishment of York University. York University acknowledges its presence on the traditional territory of many indigenous nations. The area known as Takaranto has been taken care of by the Anishinaabeg Nation, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the Wendat, and the Métis. It's now home to many indigenous peoples. We acknowledge the current treaty holders and the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. This territory is subject of the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement to peaceably share and care for the Great Lakes region. Our three panelists will provide brief comments on Professor Fisk's talk and offer some questions to our Genet visitor to be followed by questions submitted by the audience. So throughout the panel discussion, please use the Q&A button, which you'll find at the bottom of your Zoom window to send the moderator your questions. Uh, questions will be addressed at the end, and please note that this session is being recorded. So I'd like to start now with uh, Professor Tam. Well, firstly, um... Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I think it's wonderful for, for to be able to join and return back to Osgood Hall uh, Law School, uh, even in, if in a sort of virtual sense. Um, it's a real privilege to uh, be part of this panel. And I really want to thank uh, Professor Catherine uh, Fiss for her rich and stimulating presentation. I really enjoyed reading, uh, hearing the presentation, and it really uh, prompted me to actually reflect more deeply. I think reflect more deeply on our understandings of social movements, our understandings of labor movements and their relationships to law and lawyers. My first question 
However, consensus-less relationship between law and social movements, including the labor movement, as with their relationship with the process of choosing lawmakers, the electoral process. So my first question is this, how can the inclusion of electoral strategies assist in understanding the labor movement as a social movement and social movements more generally? Now, these strategies, as far as I can tell, are not expressly mentioned in Professor Sviss' uh, presentation. They seem, however, to me to be vitally important. And I say this not only because we're in the midst of, uh, of the US presidential elections, but also for three reasons that specifically pertain to the labor movement. First, labor or trade unions are inevitably engaged in some kind of electoral strategy. So in the United States, for instance, labor unions traditionally support the labor uh, Democratic Party uh, through very substantial political contributions. In Australia and United Kingdom, uh, trade unions do the same, but most, many of them, most of them, in fact, are also affiliated members uh, to the British Labor Party and Australian Labor Party. So they're not just funders of the party, but they're in fact members and part of the decision-making process. Now, the second reason is this. Uh, we all know that the industrial strength of labor unions globally is in relative decline with uh, low union density. In fact, with some workplaces, they are union free, if not union hostile, and shrinking coverage of collective agreements. Now, it seems to me that electoral strategies, or what I call political political strategies, could compensate, yeah, could, I stress, compensate for this position of weakness. And the third, reason is this, and I'll end uh, and give a chance to Professor Fiss to sort of respond to this question. The third question is that it seems in my view that addressing the overlapping crisis in the world work arising from the COVID-19 pandemic and climate change requires much more than collective bargaining strategies. It seems to me that it clearly requires strategies aimed at directly influencing the choice of lawmakers and their agenda. So for instance, the enactment of the Green New Deal uh, would, it seems to me, squarely require uh, electoral strategies. Thanks again, Professor Fiss. Thank you very much, Professor Tom, for those very thoughtful remarks. And please let me echo again my thanks for being the Pierre Genet uh, visitor at York University in Osgoode Hall. I only wish that in fact I were there in your wonderful country. Um, I think your point about thinking about social movements vis-a-vis -vis their electoral strategies and their engagement in electoral politics is enormously important. And you are exactly right. That is not something that uh, I addressed in my lecture or co-authored paper from which the lecture was drawn. In part, that is because the literature on law and social movements, especially the literature written by legal scholars as opposed to sociologists or especially political scientists, tends to focus more on either on the ground and in the streets activism or on the use of courts as an avenue for expanding legal rights. I think political scientists and to some extent sociologists have studied um, electoral strategies much more. Uh, 
But I think the larger question that you raise, you're right, of course, that the declining membership of labor unions in the United States can be um, did or and in the 1960s and 1970s it was masked by success in electoral politics and certainly one could read the electoral map in the United States, the division between red states and blue states, or the division between uh, blue cities, even in red states, and red rural areas, is a product of the higher union density in urban areas, and especially on the coasts, that give greater electoral power. One of the things that we do cover in the paper from which the lecture was drawn, however, is that success in electoral politics, in a sense, and we know this from the backlash literature on social movements, then prompts uh, to work around the successes gained through electoral politics. We see this going on right now in real time in the US election that, you know, in case anybody didn't know it, the United States is not a majority rule democracy. It never has been, but I think people thought that with the power of labor and the power of um, other social movements, especially the civil rights movement, the women's movement, that the anti-majoritarian character of US electoral politics would be muted. And you could read what's going on right now with the Republican Party as, and with the United States Supreme Court and federal courts as an effort to come up with a permanent governing strategy based on a minority representing only a minority of the country. And so I would say yes, in terms of thinking about electoral strategies as one of the ways in which workers as a group have successfully exercised power and still do exercise power. Um, but in some sense, I think it's also important to think about power on the ground in the workplace that unions have always sought to exert um, that feels like a more, for the lived experience of ordinary people, a more direct form of power than what often feels fairly remote, which is electoral power. Thanks, Professor Fiss. And I think you're right. I mean, Speaking from Australian experience and perhaps the UK too, there's clearly a complex relationship between uh, industrial power and electoral power. And that, that's why I stress it could compensate because uh, you know, some people argue, for example, uh, in Australia where when the, the Labour Party's long period of um, being in government where there was what's called a court, which is basically an agreement between the, the unions and the Labour Party, in fact, resulted in the undermining of industrial power. So. Um, I don't mean to valorize uh, electoral strategies. It's just really putting them into the picture, really. Yeah. Right. And the one other thing I would say mm -hmm. is that the 
effort in the United States through Supreme Court litigation over the last 50 years, but we saw it particularly succeed at the United States Supreme Court in the case of Janus versus AFSCME a couple of years ago that limits the ability of public sector labor uh, unions to compel workers they represent to pay fees to the union is all about blunt power of public employee unions and the kinds of sort of social movement activity that they engage in. And so this is, I think, a crucial part of the story and one that bears careful study, both in the way that it affects politics on the left, but also at the moment, the way it affects politics on the right and the electoral power of uh, law enforcement or police unions is considerable. And what we are right now seeing is how that can um, block yeah. legal reforms that are based in more of the sort of on the streets form of social movement activism. Yeah. I mean, that, that example is just, uh, always, always reminds me, you know, a comment that, you know, Robert Dow, you know, one of the key theories democracy made that, and it was a sort of analysis um, with the preoccupation that many had with the tyranny of the majority. And he said, of course, this is a risk with any system, uh, even what normally a democratic, but he said, the more acute risk is the tyranny of powerful minorities. And I think your comment about the, uh, the police union, but also about the way in which the electro U.S. electoral system is configured, I think, uh, bears the truth of that observation. Yeah. I'll come to my, oh, sorry, oh, sorry, sorry, Professor, sorry, I interrupted. Yeah, please. All I was going to say is that much of the literature on labor unions, especially in the 1960s, focused on them as interest groups, which focus primarily, and that literature, of course, focused primarily on their electoral strategy and their political power. And indeed, part of what um, we are trying to do in this scholarship is to remind everyone that are interest groups that act in an electoral way, but they are also membership-based mass movement social activism organizations that um, aren't just a minoritarian or one of a you know, pluralist political system, but in fact try to transform um, the way that people think not in the sort of conception of liberal pluralist interest group politics, but rather in a more mass movement form. Yes, yes. Uh, points well made. In fact, I'll pick them up in my comments in the second question, because I think um, what it does raise, and I'll come to this shortly, is you know our conception of what labor unions or labor unionism uh, is, uh, is or are. And I think the entry point for the second question is really, I think, your very correct and cogent observation of that contradictory relationship between law and the labor movement and social movement and that corrective that provides in terms of the law and social movement scholarship more broadly. So I think, as you point out, I mean, these laws that apply to labor unions both empower and constrain them, 
both provide for their existence while endangering their survival and constitute and also constrain their activities, including activism. Now, it seems to me that this contradiction uh, is an aspect of a broader contradiction in terms of labor law in capitalist economies, where such law both protects workers from overbearing employer power as well as subordinates them. That such law decommodifies the employment relationship through labor standards while underwriting commodification by sanctioning and underwriting managerial prerogative. Now, given these inevitable contradictions, the critical question perhaps is where the balance of the contradictions should lie. And then this in turn, for me, raises the issue as to the normative perspectives we might bring to bear uh, to these contradictions. So my second question is this, given the contradictory relationship between law and the labor movement as a social movement, how should this relationship be evaluated? In particular, what normative standards should we apply in such an evaluation? Addressing the question seems to me to turn on our, the conception of unionism we might adopt, whether it be business unionism focusing on collective bargaining, social movement uh, unionism aimed at socializing the capitalist economy, or radical unionism directed at an anti-capitalist agenda. And in this context, I wonder too whether the use of international labor standards as a set, set of normative standards might be useful in the American context, particularly the standards on freedom association, Convention 87, Convention 98. And while I note that the US hasn't ratified these two conventions, it is as the 1998 ILO Declaration on Fundamental Principles and Rights at Work, uh, bound by constitutional obligation uh, by virtue of its ILO membership uh, to the principles of freedom association. Those are excellent and really astute observations. I don't know that I'll have satisfactory answers and I think all of us perhaps could benefit from thinking more about it. Um, I think to your point about the um, what normative relationship um, or normative standards we should apply. One of the challenges that the labor movement has always had that differs from other social movements in the United States is that the labor movement by definition is a majoritarian movement in so far as it is class-based and that it challenges the power of the elites in capitalism in a way that no other US-based social movement ever really has. And there is not the possibility of interest convergence the famous interest convergence theory as articulated, for example, by Derek Bell uh, in the United States, the very eminent Harvard law professor um, and founder of critical race theory. That the civil rights movement as a social movement in the United States has successfully enabled, uh, has successfully allowed capitalism to embrace 
civil rights and the demands for black equality. We see this all the time in the way that major corporations came out in support of the movement for black lives in the wake of the murder of George Floyd in May of 2020 and so forth. And there is a way in which what makes labor different is that capital will never embrace it in quite the same way because it poses a threat to the hegemony of capital. The history of the American labor movement, of course, is a history of an effort to um, gain power without being perceived as being a fundamental threat to capitalism. And of course, the left critiques of labor unions and the labor movement were all about how it accommodated itself too much to the demands of capital in uh, in especially advanced capitalism in sort of the 1950s and 60s. But I think one way to understand the story that we tell, and which I didn't go into in as much detail in my lecture, is that the law regulating the US labor movement that was all about making labor unions, responsible negotiating partners, non-radical activists when it came to protest over working conditions, was all about accommodating labor to the demands of mid-20th century capitalism. And you can still read law today as being an effort to prevent fundamental threats to certain aspects of the global economy, such as the prohibition on secondary boycotts that applies only to labor unions and not to other kinds of movement actors because they haven't historically been a threat. And so that's not really an answer to your question about normative standards. I think the question would be more one of um, one's, I mean, I have my personal views on that, um, but I think that you're exactly right to flag a fundamental tension that will never go away in capitalism. Finally, to your point about the ILO, I will admit that this paper is very US law centric with all the problems that come from that. And one of the foundational aspects of US scholarship on labor is how much scholars tend to ignore international labor standards and it is a product, of course, of the fact that the United States has ignored international standards for the entire history of the ILO since right after World War One. Just to wrap up on this theme, I might say the one thing that might uh, encourage Americans who've always had a very ambivalent relationship to American global power is that if this is the end of the period of American uh, global dominance and we are at the end of the empire, um, that perhaps then that will free progressive forces in the United States to become another member of the global community rather than the 800 pound global gorilla that just will never accede to international human rights standards in our own domestic operations.
So in the end, that might be the gift that the Trump destruction of American governance brings us. Thank you so much, Professor Fis. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Fisk, for your thought-provoking lecture. Uh, I'm sure I speak for all of the union lawyers in the audience today when I say that your lecture has caused us to reflect upon our own relationship to the law and to the labor movement itself. Uh, as labor lawyers, we often talk about labor rights, and we sometimes think of our role as defined by certain rights achieving victories. But as you know, the story of the relationship between labor and the law is not always or even often a story of positive rights claiming struggle, but rather of how the law itself acts upon the movement. Here in Canada, we've had more success than in the United States with respect to rights claiming in the courts, winning the constitutional right to picket, to strike, and to collectively bargain. But even then, in all of these areas, so much of the story of labor and the law is the story of the law restricting and channeling these rights into narrow, legally permissible paths, lest the union face picketing injunctions, unlawful strike applications, and other legal repercussions for stepping beyond the boundaries. One of the things your lecture makes me reflect upon is the difficult reality of how we as labor lawyers are participants in the systems that restrict and constrain our union clients. And a second is the question of what movement lawyering means in the context of labor movement given these unique restrictions. The story of the ILWU and Juno Spruce in your lecture sheds light on both of these issues. First, it so perfectly demonstrates the ways in which union lawyers are made complicit in the channeling and constraining of labor activism. And second, it also helps to illustrate quite nicely that movement lawyering in the context of labor lawyers isn't necessarily the positive rights claiming struggles we romanticize, but often involves defensive strategic maneuvering to protect the movement from legal repression. Sometimes labor lawyering does feel like rights winning, but other times it seems like doing a deal, whatever the right or the rights of the situation. Moving between these two modes of work is sometimes strategic, sometimes instinctive, and sometimes we get it wrong. A final point your lecture has encouraged me to reflect upon is what we as labor lawyers can learn from other social movement lawyers. We tend to think of ourselves as labor lawyers as a category onto ourselves. However, just as social movements can learn from the legal restrictions faced by labor, surely too, labor lawyers can learn from other social movement lawyers. In my own practice, I often find myself walking down the hall to the criminal lawyers in my office, for instance, to ask them, as an example, about the law of trespass when an employer threatens to call the police on union organizers. But perhaps we as union counsel should be thinking deeper about the more transferable lessons we can learn from other movement lawyers. And that is a point which segues nicely into my first question. You describe labor lawyers as caused lawyers, yet very often our support for the labor movement's social movement ends comes into tension with our professional responsibilities to protect the union as an institution. Union lawyers are often required to tell the union leadership that they can't do that, or sometimes that they shouldn't have told us that. 
How can union lawyers better reconcile our professional obligations to the union with our desire to support the union as a social movement? And if labor lawyers want to be social movement lawyers, what other types of law do we need to be engaging in on behalf of our union clients? Is it enough for us to just be labor lawyers nowadays? Thank you so much for those incredible, uh, helpful, and passionate, may I say, comments. Um, the fact that one of our principal goals in writing the paper is to bring labor lawyers, union lawyers, into the imagination of scholars about who a lawyer for a social movement is. At least in the United States, so much of how we have envisioned who a social movement lawyer is, is Thurgood Marshall and Charles Hamilton Houston, the lawyers for the civil rights movement, the women's movement, environmental movement, um, welfare rights movements, all those social movements, as well as, of course, conservative movement lawyers as well. Uh, and one of our principal goals is simply to say, wait, that's not the only kind of social movement lawyer around. I think it is also really important to recognize how challenging it is for lawyers to be movement actors and activists, which is what draws labor lawyers to the labor movement in the first place, the desire to make a change, to be part of the movement, to empower working people, to advocate for a more equitable uh, distribution of wealth, while at the same time representing institutions that are subject to very considerable legal restraints and channels that force the union into being less radical, less activist, um, I don't want to minimize the risks, the violence, the tremendous physical and personal danger by the estimated 13 million people who took to the streets in the United States in the spring of 2020, or to the generations of activists who preceded them, the people who were beaten and lynched and shot. But from the standpoint of a lawyer for a movement, the, it's not just the risks to the individuals, it's also the risk to the movement and to the organization itself. You can't bankrupt you know, the movement for Black lives by suing it. In fact, you can't even sue it. But you can bankrupt a union and so the, and you can sue it as an entity. And so part of what I wanted to get people to think about is this puts lawyers for the movement in a real dilemma that you so articulately identify. I don't have an answer to your hard question of how should we as labor lawyers navigate the challenge 
partly I don't have an answer to that because it's a hard question that involves personal choices that each of us as lawyers have to make for ourselves. And at least in the United States, and I suspect it's true in Canada as well, the rules of professional conduct governing lawyers don't answer those questions for you. But I think the more important reason why I don't have an answer is that it is a decision for the union through its elected leadership, for the members of the union through the processes of deliberation at, to make with their lawyers. How risk averse are they? What risks are they willing to run? Our goal in telling the story of Juno was to show how even the most radical and activist of labor unions in the late 1940s and early 1950s, and the ILWU was radical by any stretch. The president was of the union, Harry Bridges, was the subject of four US government efforts to deport him to his home country of Australia because they believed he was a communist. It was constantly subject to injunctions and damages actions for various kinds of activity. The story of Juno Spruce was an effort that started at a small, um, as I said in the lecture, just an ordinary dispute at a lumber mill in Juneau in what was then the territory of Alaska, but then became an effort to destroy the union in Hawaii just after it had won huge success in organizing the entire agricultural workforce in what was then a plantation economy in what was then the territory of Hawaii before it became a state. That wasn't an accident, the fact that they went to Hawaii. It was a deliberate effort to smash the union in Hawaii in order that the union would not threaten the power of the white oligarchy there. It failed and Hawaii remains one of the bluest of blue states in the United States because of the power that unionization gave the multiracial um, workforce in which whites have never been a majority. And so I think that the answer to your question is it depends on whether the union's leadership is willing to risk whatever risks it will be, it will depend on what the membership wants. And one stories that I didn't tell in the lecture has to do with the way that the union beat this damages judgment, which involved the local leaders of the Hawaii local, which was huge, it had 20 or 30,000 members at the time, going to every one of the members of a class, a collective action who had a wage and hour judgment that they were defending in the Supreme Court and getting each one of those plaintiffs in a lawsuit to agree to relinquish his or her claim to their damages so that when the union's lawyers settled the case, they could use the settlement paid by the big sugar companies and shipping companies in Hawaii um, to pay off the lumber company in Alaska. And that that was sort of a great political strategy. It got rid of the litigation. 
also did was empower the workers by letting them choose whether they wanted to give up their claim to damages in order to keep their union alive. And that what could have been a tremendous defeat of the organizing power of the union became actually an organizing victory because it was an opportunity for the lawyers to explain to the members, for the leadership to explain to the members how the business was trying to use the law to crush the union and how they could support the power that they had gained by agreeing to join the fight um, and give up their claim for damages. None, none of them gave up very much money as an individual. And indeed, as it turned out, none of them actually gave up anything because they wound up losing the case just after they settled it. And so they would have recovered nothing, which made it an especially amusing story from the union standpoint. But that was using bad law as the basis to organize people. It's incredibly labor intensive, but that can be a success. And so as I'm sure you know from your own work, an injunction against picketing can defeat a strike or it can galvanize the activists against the injustice. It just depends on how clever and determined the organizers are, the leadership is, and how courageous the membership is in willing to seize victory from the jaws of defeat. Absolutely, and that's a, that's a fascinating story that you just shared. Um, in your lecture, you explain how the law is able to channel activism and constrain labor as a social movement in a manner that's distinct from rights-seeking organizations and how the system takes what's powerful about the union uh, or what makes the union powerful and turns it against the radical tendencies of the union. Uh, as the Wagner model continues to deteriorate, and the unfairness of this historical bargain becomes more and more apparent, how can the labor movement escape these legal strictures in the face of crushing damages, judgments, and other sanctions it may face for stepping outside of the boundaries of this regime? Uh, and I, I think you may have answered this in part in, in your, your last answer, but have other social movements faced these similar constraints? And if so, what lessons can labor draw from other social movements in overcoming these challenges? Another great question that is a whole research agenda for any students who might want to be, who might be listening and want to write a paper on it. I think there is way in which unions are unique because of the power they have and the responsibility they have as collective bargaining agents. That unions and institutional role to play that most other social movements don't have in governing the workplace. But of course, it gives that what gives them power also constrains how they use their power. As I explained, I think what perhaps labor lawyers can learn from other social movements is the, and, you know, I think most of us already know this, but it never hurts to be reminded again, that organizing is a never-ending process. That building power for workers is never something that you sort of achieve through 
official recognition under the Wagner Act model, and then you cement through securing a collective bargaining agreement with an effective arbitration mechanism and good worker protections. It has to be a constant, ongoing process of protecting the contract that's been gained, um, empowering workers to feel that the contract is theirs, it's not the unions, and that this always is going to require a partnership between the lawyers who have to do the sort of day-to-day -day work of administering the contract, handling grievance arbitrations, um, dealing with the litigation arising out of picketing, whatever it is, that that ordinary legal work has to be connected in the minds of the lawyers and the union members to the enterprise of making the union a bottom-up, sort of worker-governed, constantly on the move, constantly venting organization. And that perhaps the mistake that the US labor movement made in the 1960s was and 1950s was to think we have our contracts we have our recognition now it's a machine that will go by itself and that there's not much that we have to do in terms of organizing we now know that was disastrous um, but like any disaster it's something that can be turned around thank you professor fisk uh, my final question uh, as union lawyers, we use litigation as a form of resistance and struggle for the labor movement, constitutional challenges to wage restraint and back to work legislation, strategic litigation to advance collective bargaining and organizing goals and so forth. However, uh, many have criticized the legalization of struggle and the role that this plays in undermining or at least displacing the on the ground social movement struggle of the labor movement. Um, how can practitioners who are supportive of and believe in the labor movement as a social movement use the law as a tool to support the labor movement and its activism and militancy? And is there by necessity a trade-off between legal struggle uh, and the more radical social movement struggle of unions? I think there's not necessarily a trade-off. I think it's a question of how the legal struggle is connected to the daily lives of the members. We know this as labor lawyers. We know it from the history of the civil rights movement in the United States. I suspect in the Canadian context, um, which I'm less familiar with, uh, one would know that about the movement about Indigenous and First Nations rights, that it's not law or on the ground. It's how to put what we as lawyers do in the service of a worker-led movement. And I think this is what, I imagine this is what you do as a labor lawyer. I think it's what all good labor lawyers do is recognize that we as lawyers are not running the movement. We're not the movement. In a sense, we are um, maybe partners, maybe the servants of the movement. That the job of the activist lawyer is to 
enable the members of the movement to self-determine their own lives, their strategies. You know, the lawyers don't decide whether to call a strike, whether to picket, whether to have a consumer boycott, whether to form common cause with the movement for Black lives or whatever. The members are supposed to be deciding that. And then the lawyers put their talent and their strategic sense in service of that, those goals. And so I think that's what makes it fun to be a lawyer, is to really be in partnership with your client. And I think in this case, the challenge for labor lawyers is the client is not the union leadership any more than the client of a corporate lawyer is the CEO. The clients are the members of the organization. And in that sense, in some sense, it's easier to be, to remember as a labor lawyer who your real client is. Yes, of course you represent the union, but the union is only its members. And that keeping the desires and goals and needs sort of strategic sense of the members in the forefront of our mind is when we are providing our best service. And if in the end, the members make a decision to do something that the lawyer thinks is unduly risky, engage in a sit-down strike when you know that everybody's going to get elected, uh, uh, sorry, ejected, arrested, and the strike may well be lost, you can give them that legal advice, and then it's their decision what to do about it, and your decision, you know, then your job is to get them bailed out. And so that, I think, is what's the fun of being a labor lawyer, but it's also what keeps us true to our clients. Thank you, Professor Fisk. Cer certainly uh, some humility uh, and respect for the movement on the, on the part of the lawyers, I think, is, is part of what's much needed. Thank you. Okay, so I'm up next. Great. Um, I want to apologize ahead of time. I sort of misunderstood the format. I took this to be more of an author meets critics thing. So I actually prepared like roughly 15 minutes of remarks with some questions incorporated into that. Uh, I will try to abbreviate as much as possible, but it's my fault for not clarifying. But I really want to thank everyone for being here today, for Professor Fisk for her insightful, provocative uh, presentation. Also, thanks to the other panelists and and especially and also of course Sarah Slynn for inviting me to speak. It's really an honor to be able to sort of come back to Osgoode Hall. Um, uh, it's uh, I grew up nearby in Guelph, but uh, I I never had a chance to visit, so I have the virtual version now. But uh, I'm going to start with a, a bit of a, a movie reference because when I was listening to uh, Professor Fisk's um, presentation, I, I was reminded of the 1950 Akira Kurosawa movie Rashomon, which famously retells the story of the events surrounding a samurai's murder from multiple perspectives. And so with each character's retelling of the story, we see the same events, but we see them differently. Some elements sharpen into focus, others kind of blur into the background. And so for me, I had the sense while I was watching this lecture of discussing a set of events and historical processes that were and are deeply familiar to me, but from a different and unfamiliar vantage point. 
And so from this new vantage point, I could discern familiar events and actors off in the distance while other more in my world, minor characters, the lawyers, of course, uh, or vaguely familiar events sort of sharpen into focus. And I came away from the experience deeply appreciative of just how much sociologists and legal scholars still have to learn from each other despite decades of interdisciplinary talk and even the creation of interdisciplinary programs like the Jurisprudence and Social Policy program I'm familiar with at Berkeley. Um, I was also surprised to see how closely aligned our research questions are despite our disciplinary divide. Because like Professor Fisk, I too have long been deeply puzzled and perplexed by this strange separation that exists between labor and social movement studies. My own puzzlement goes all the way back to the sociology of social movement seminar I took in my second year of grad school at UC Berkeley, which was somewhat ironically taught by uh, Professor Kim Voss, who Professor Fisk referenced in her talk. Now Voss herself is a world-renowned labor scholar. She was also my dissertation chair. Um, and when I took her seminar, I was just over a year out from having left my previous career as a union organizer, primarily with Teamsters for Democratic Union in Detroit. So I had been deeply immersed in the tensions and complexities of the actually existing labor movement as a movement. And needless to say, it was quite a surreal experience for me to sit through an entire semester-long seminar on social movements taught by a world-renowned labor scholar with barely a mention of labor movements. Now that's not to say that sociologists don't study labor. On the contrary, there's a vast vibrant scholarly literature on labor, which Professor Fisk and many of you are deeply familiar with already. It's just that this literature remains largely cut off from the social movement scholarship. So I've never actually run the numbers for sociology journals like Professor Fisk did for the law reviews. Uh, I've toyed with some approaches, but never actually done it. But I'm almost certain that if I were to do that, I would find that same kind of gap between labor and social movement studies that she did. Labor is just not a reference point for social movement scholars. Like most academics, social movement scholars remain largely unaware of and unfamiliar with labor movements and do not incorporate them into their scholarship. So why is that? Now, this is not the central concern of Professor Fisk's paper, which uses the Juno Spruce 1952 case as a sort of jumping off point to present this very different view of the relationship between social movements and the law than does the conventional social movement scholarship. But I would argue that it's a worthwhile question to ask, especially since, as Professor Fisk shows so well in her talk, bringing labor back in to social movement studies ends up challenging many of the core tenets of that scholarship. So I've never developed a fully fleshed out answer to this question myself. I took a stab at it actually for my final paper in Professor Voss's social movement seminar. I um, mean, the years since I've come back to it and hinted at it in, in uh, a few parts of an answer here and there in a few papers, but nothing systematic. But if you'll indulge me, I'll share with you my thoughts on why I think there's such a strange separation between labor and social movement studies. And I think the answer really comes down to a sociological and historical account of the emergence and development of social movement studies as a field. Because what's important to realize is that although social movement theory is meant to be sort of abstract and generalizable, trying this sort of set of conceptual tools to understand social movements in general, it's also very much the product of a very particular time and place, namely the US and parts of Western Europe in the late 70s and 1980s. 
So the pioneers of social movement theory were working in the aftermath of the largest social upheaval of their lifetimes, the movements of the 1960s. Additionally, the discipline of sociology itself was changing. A new generation, this also was happening in other disciplines, a new generation of scholars that was shaped by and often active themselves in these 1960s movements suddenly swelled the ranks of sociology and other graduate programs in the 70s, injecting the discipline with a leftward political bent, as well as a suspicion of traditional institutions of power. And perhaps unsurprisingly, many of the key early pieces in the social movements literature examine the movements in which this new generation of sociologists had been active. And that context, I argue, shaped not only the empirical content, but, as, but also the theoretical conception of what constituted a social movement. And that conception was one that largely excluded class-based movements. So for the 1960s New Left, particularly here, uh, here in the, I'm right now in the US, um, there was a stark divide between the social movements in which they were active and traditional vehicles of class-based mobilization as they experienced them. Purged of their left wing and fully incorporated into the Cold War liberal consensus, the once contentious unions of the pre-war era to the new left seemed like stodgy bureaucratic behemoths, more tied to the power structure against which they were rebelling than part of their movement. And while some unions supported aspects of the civil rights movement, the new left's experience of so-called big labor was framed much more by pro-war hawk AFL-CIO President George Meany or the overhyped but symbolically important hard hat riots attacking anti-war protesters. So as such, labor and the working class were largely left out of the empirical scope of social movement scholarship. Just as new leftists distinguished themselves from the class-based politics of the old left, so too did social movement scholars distinguish between old and new social movements. And in this typology, old movements were those, like unions, based in the working class and organized around economic issues, while new movements were those based among strata of the so-called new middle class and organized around so-called post-materialist issues of identity, environment, and individual rights. Precisely the ones, as Professor Fisk rightly notes, which are far more likely to pursue legal strategies based on rights claims. So this empirical separate, and um, I'll skip this last part about the death of class, but because uh, I want to move on. But the, in this account, I would argue that it's not so much a question of bringing labor back in to social movement studies as it is simply bringing it in, period. Because labor, I believe, was largely excised from social movement studies from its inception. And that makes the task of bringing these bodies of scholarship together both more challenging, but also more rewarding. Because if we draw in another body of sociology, namely the sociology of science, one of the insights we can take from that is that scientific breakthroughs often arise from scholars crossing disciplinary boundaries. What seemed to be obvious, even taken for granted insights in one field can sometimes completely upend another. And we see this quite clearly in Professor Fisk's discussion of the relation between social movements and the law. Now, any labor scholar worth their salt should be able to rattle off just off the top of their head the endless ways that labor law constrains unions and workers instead of enabling them to actualize their freedoms. I'll add here, as 
uh, Josh mentioned that even though Canada has made great strides in recent years in reading labor rights into our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the reality of labor injunctions and back-to-work orders shows that the law plays a very coercive role in Canada too, perhaps not to the same degree as in the U.S. So this co coercive, constraining view of the law stands in sharp contrast to how much social movement scholarship views the law. There, legal rights create a target around which movements organize and serve as an emancipatory function, serve an emancipatory function once they are one. So understanding the conditions under which the law enables or constrains movements in it is an area well worth additional exploration. However, I would caution that it would be wrong to say that existing social movement scholarship takes a uniformly sanguine view of the law. Indeed, there are countless studies showing how a focus on legal strategies can sap movement energies and channel them into more socially acceptable forms. Here, a great example would be something like gay marriage. On the one hand, it represents a smashing movement success, which achieved its goals and really succeeded in completely reversing public opinion within less than a decade. But as many critics have pointed out, this was at the expense of sidelining and marginalizing other less heteronormative forms of queer identity, not to mention the more radical political demands of queer, queer liberation movements. So bringing labor and social movement studies into social movement studies certainly challenges some core assumptions in the field, particularly around the value of waging struggles around rights. And indeed, I have a lot to say about how this legal rights framework has hobbled US labor, but I don't have time to get into that today. Bringing labor in also creates linkages across seemingly disparate movements, which is also worth exploring. So as I hope is clear from my remarks, I found Professor Fisk's talk to be incredibly generative and it got my thinking going in all kinds of different directions, but with an eye towards facilitating some more structured discussion, I'll close with a few key questions that I drew from the talk. So number one, um, there's a lot of talk in the presentation about adding nuance to existing theories of the relation between social movements and the law. But beyond simply adding nuance, how does incorporating labor improve our understanding of this relationship? What do existing theories get wrong that bringing labor back in helps to correct? Number two, I'll just read them off and you can answer what, what, what you feel is appropriate. Number two is that legal intervention, not just violent repression, has long shaped US unions behavior well before the Taft-Hartley Act. Here I'm thinking particularly of Victoria Haddam's work, which shows how constant threats of legal injunctions on labor activism drove unions towards more, a more voluntarist, pure and simple politics form of unionism. Once they found that any possible legislative advances they made would be reversed by the courts. So aside from the fact that you're focused specifically on lawyers instead of the relationship between law and politics, I would be curious to know if you're arguing that this phenomenon you study of the conservatizing effect of law on movements is a new phenomenon resulting from the Wagner framework modified, of course, by Taft-Hartley, or do you see it as an evolution of a pre-existing phenomenon? And if the former, what makes it new? And my third question, you already answered part of it, which is how the ILW avoided having to pay legal damages in the Juno Spruce case, but if you have some time, I'd be interested to know if you think that the way that the IOW dodged the bullet in Juno Spruce has any ramifications for the IOW's chances to dodge the bullet again in its current case involving the Portland, Oregon ICTSI uh, ports. So that's my uh, comments and question. questions. 
Thank you very much, Barry. Your, or Professor Idlin, uh, your um, account of how labor wound up being siloed from the rest of social movement studies is, in my judgment, exactly correct. To answer your specific question, I think there are a number of ways in which thinking of labor as a social movement changes the way we think about the relationship between social movements and law. First of all, I think it's really important, as you say, and, and uh, Mr. Mandrick also focused on this, to think about how movements relate to law when law and new legal rights are not the goal, because at least in the United States, labor won most of the legal rights it was going to win as a movement in 1935. And yes, of course, other statutes were enacted and labor was crucial to them, including the Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970 and the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990. So there were a lot, but for workers as a class, really class-based rights, 1935 was it. Everything else that labor thought it could win, it was going to win not through legal rights, but rather at the bargaining table. And that simply has to do in part with American political culture um, and what happened in American political history after, you know, first after, during World War Two, and then thereafter when Republicans were dominant for a very long time. And so when you think of law as a constraint rather than as a goal, it changes how we think about what movement success is and what movements are aspiring to do. Second, I think it's really important to study labor because most social movement scholarship have not really thought about movements as institutions with something to lose. You know, the LGBTQI movement was never an thought of as an institution. Of course, there were institutions within it. Um, even the NAACP, you know, the most it had it stood to lose a lot, not to mention the lynching of its members, but the coffers of the organization, yes, there was the threat to its membership lists and to what would happen to its members if its lists were publicized because they might be lynched or blacklisted, etc. But the institution with contracts, with member dues, with the power on the ground in workplaces that unions got by virtue of being institutions is a way in which unions are unique. And I think especially as we look forward in time to a new future of what worker organizations or indeed any social movement organization could achieve, for example, I'm thinking about how to address structural racism by incorporating movement organizations into the governance of institutions, or if we think about First Nations and Indigenous peoples organizations as institutions with something to lose, how does that change how we think about the relationship between these institutions and law? 
I think I've already alluded to, especially in my conversations with uh, Mr. Mandrick, about the fairly significant role of lawyers as mediating um, players between a repressive law and a radical organization. And I think that's why I think studying labor lawyers, which really has not been done, at least in the US, in a systematic way, unlike lawyers for the civil rights movement of the 1960s who have been extensively studied. And I will say my next book is on mid-century labor lawyers. And this is a first effort in that direction. I think it's also important to think about um, what happens when institutions lose fights. So much of the narrative, at least in the American law and social movements literature, and this is true in sociology, with the exception of uh, your advisor and my colleague, Kim Voss. Um, so many of the studies are of wins. You mentioned uh, same-sex marriage and the social acceptance of LGBT people. And of course now the fact that it's now unlawful to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation and transgender status in employment. You know, those are wins. Labor has had a lot of losses. And there is a small strand in the US literature about the way in which a litigation loss can be a movement win. But there are also a lot of examples and labor history is full of them in which a litigation loss is a movement loss. And the question of how labor, when a litigation loss is a movement loss and when it's a win, we need a lot more study on that. And then finally, and I know we're out of time, so I'll close here. I think it's important to think about different kinds of rights claims and the way that movements have made them and law has recognized them. In the United States, at least, the kind of rights claims that the labor movement has made, for example, the right to um, a job, the right to minimum standards, affirmative rights, have never had the same kind of powerful resonance in elite legal circles that the rights, negative rights, the right to be free from restraints on speech or press or religion. This is part of American constitutional culture, but I think the labor, one reason why labor has not succeeded for the most part in rights claiming is because there isn't a framework in US law to make the kinds of claims about rights that labor has made. And so I think the constitutive concept as opposed to the material concept of rights as to which there was a huge literature in the United States in the 1980s sparked by critical legal uh, studies or critical legal theory, that, that, that we have a lot more work to do as scholars in thinking about which kinds of rights claims wind up being resonant and how that empowers people, ordinary people vis-a-vis -vis law, 
the dominance of the movement for civil rights, for gender equality, gay rights, to some extent even indigenous rights, has shaped the way we think about what rights can do and be for people. And going forward, I think there is a lot more thinking to be done about that. Thank you so much for your incredibly perceptive engagement with my work. And thank you all of you for listening to me twice. Thank you very much to Professor Fisk and to our panelists, uh, Professors Tam and Eidlin and Mr. Mandrick for a stimulating discussion and to our audience for participating in this year's Janae Visitor event. Thank you very much.